I did encourage a much briefer introduction, <laughs> but uh, Rich has streaks of rebellion in him. <laughs> it is uh, wonderful to be, be here with you this morning. Let's, let's pray again. Lord, we pray this morning not because it's a religious exercise, but because we desperately need your help. The truths of your word are not always obvious to us. We don't always have open hearts. We are often distracted by the cares of life or by our own pride. And so we pray that you would help us this morning. You would make your word clear. You would give me the ability to represent you well, and that you would give us open, approachable, soft, willing, and ready hearts. We know that all these things we cannot do in ourselves and for ourselves, so we pray for your help. And we are thankful that you have promised that you will never turn a deaf ear to the cries of your children. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You probably don't need me to tell you this, but we're in a very sad and dangerous moment as a culture. There are things that we once would have expected would always be and always be assumed that are no longer there and assumed by our culture. You can barely look at your phone or your iPad or Netflix without having your morals assaulted. We've just about given up that we will ever elect politicians that are people of character. Things happen at universities that make you wonder what we define as education anymore. The stress in families, the degree to which families break apart, the stories of the abuse of children are shocking to us all. And you have to ask yourself, why? What, what is going on around us? And can I say, amongst us? Because the stories of what's happening in the church are just as shocking. Uh, we have, instead of standing against the culture, we've replicated the culture. Uh, I read things written by people who profess to be believers that are shocking and sad to me. Why? Well, I want to pose, propose you this morning and then take you to a passage of Scripture that there's a single concept that our culture has forsaken that explains everything that I've just described. It's one single, profound word. In fact, you could argue that there may be no more important word 
in the mind of a human being, in the heart of a human being, than this word. You could argue that this word is absolutely counterintuitive for us. It's not our normal way of thinking. And so it really takes an act of grace to open your mind to this word, to open your heart to this word, to make you even remotely interested in this concept. But without this concept, everything becomes something other than what it was created to be. Every institution of man, every thing that God created for us to experience and enjoy becomes something different than it was designed to be because we have forsaken this one single word. You'll never read this word in the New York Times. You'll never, ever hear this word mentioned on whatever news broadcast you watch or whatever you read on Twitter. For those of you who don't know what Twitter is, <laughs> you probably rode here on a horse. <laughs> so I just can't help you. Uh, you're, you're probably thinking, okay, Paul, what is this word? I want to give it to you. The word is holy. If you understand... First, the holiness of God. That that holiness was meant to be central in life. That everything I know about myself, my entire sense of identity, everything I want for my life, everything I think about relationships, all of my goals, all of my everyday functioning was to have at its center this one reality that at the center of everything that is is a God of incalculable holiness. And you can't forsake that category and be okay. You can't leave that category just for dark, distant, historical, institutional religion and be okay. You can't. And that's exactly what we've done. Who in the world talks about holy anymore? Who? The answer is no one. And we pay the price every single day of our lives. We all do. from young children to the elderly. All of our lives are affected somehow, some way. Turn in your Bibles or in your electronic whatever to Isaiah 6. This is actually the calling of Isaiah into prophetic ministry. And we could spend 
several Sundays just unpacking the scene. The scene is so utterly mind-numbing. I'm not going to do that today. So uh, this would be more fantastic than any of the amazing Star Wars-esque movies you've ever seen. This is a mind-boggling scene. And you can sense that even, even as it's written here in Isaiah, that the prophet is stretching the human language as far as he can to try to capture for us this scene before the throne of God. But that's where we are. The scene is the throne of God. Let me read for you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that, had, that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt has, is taken away, and your sin atoned for. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom won't go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. It's an amazing scene. It's one of, those, one of those places where God in his grace rips back the curtain for just a brief moment. So you and I can get some kind of glimpse of the stunning, awesome glory and holiness of God. And the reason we get those glimpses in Scripture is because we're holiness amnesiacs. We're God amnesiacs. When you're, when you're in traffic and that person in front of you has the audacity not to be going as quickly as you want them to go, you have no God consciousness in you whatsoever. God is totally gone. It's just you and your sovereignty. And how dare this person be in my way? My dad used to say the definition of a split second is from the time the light changes to the time the guy behind you honks. That's us. When you're eating your fourth piece of chocolate cake, needing not even one, you, there's no God consciousness in you. There's cake consciousness <laughs> that has overwhelmed you and is now controlling your behavior. Uh, it's a grace for us. We need these moments in Scripture. We need these moments where we stop and consider the godness of God. 
because it's so easy for us to forget. And when you forget God, when you forget the one who is on this throne, then other things in your life rise in levels of importance and begin to claim your heart and control your behavior. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> that happens to all of us. So being right becomes way too important to me. It's not wrong to, be, to want to be right, but right better not rule your heart. You cannot live with a person who has to be right all the time. <laughs> there are people in this room who are now knowingly shaking their heads. <laughs> it's, it's not wrong to want beautiful things around you, but if you, if you spend your life in the pursuit of beautiful material things, you'll probably live in horrible debt and you will have no vision that your resources are meant to serve God and not you. The king owns those and he wants them for his kingdom. We need these, these moments where we stop and all of our busyness and all the frenetic things that claim us, we stop and we consider the stunning nature of this one who is at the center of everything. Because he's not always at the center of everything for us. We need to meditate. We need to sit down. Smell the roses. Be quiet and consider. And these seraphim, these amazing creatures with six wings that are on either side of God's throne are flying back and forth. What an amazing, <laughs> it's just a crazy scene. And they're screaming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Imagine these creatures back and forth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God's holiness is so grand and great, and I've used the word incalculable, one holy was not enough. Two holies were not enough. You get a triple holy here. Uh, it's, it's, it's meant to say do you, do you know who this one is? Do you know what his holiness is about? And, and when it says the whole earth is filled with his glory, it's still talking about his holiness. God's holiness is so immense that if the entire world were a container, it would fill it to the top. Now what you need to understand here, and it's very important to understand, it's God's holiness is not one of his characteristics. God's holiness is his essence. There's a difference. That means he's holy in everything that he is. He's holy all the time. 
He's holy wherever He is. He's holy in faithfulness. He's holy in love. He's holy in sovereignty. He's holy in grace. He's holy in power. He's holy in omnipresence. He's holy. He's holy. He's holy. He's holy. And every way that God can possibly be, He is holy in that way. And the, and the sort of root of this word is separate. That means God's separate from everything that is because he's something that everything isn't. He's utterly, perfectly pure in every way possible. Impossible for him to think an evil thing. Impossible for him to do an evil thing. Impossible for him to desire an evil thing. Everything he does is absolutely pure. At the center of the universe is unblemished purity. Think of that. Think how we have no experience anywhere in our lives of unblemished purity, do we? Nowhere. Not even you. Nowhere. Everything around us is blemished in some way. Not God. Everything makes mistakes in some way. Not God. Now that means... Everything he says to you is completely trustworthy. Everything he wants from you is totally good. Everything he promises you is completely reliable. Everything he will do in you and through you and to you is utterly pure. Now, you believe that when you're having a good week. But that also means that hardship that he brings into your life is motivated by what is completely pure. I can't tell you that I understand all the things that God does. Because God's secret will is called His secret will because it's secret. <laughs> but I can tell you this, at the heart of the one who rules those things is utter purity. I can't always put A and B together. But the world is ruled by one without blemish. Now, a little bit about theology here for a moment. This is free. Good, sound 
Biblical theology doesn't just define who God is, but it redefines who you are as his creatures. So you are the creatures of this one. You're the objects of the rule of this one. And so you can't fall into fatalistic, the world's just against me, and all those things that deny that in the center of everything that is, is one of incalculable holiness. Now, again, we're just scratching the surface here. There's so much we could say about this. Oh, we got several other verses to look at. Now, notice, if you would, Isaiah's immediate reaction. He doesn't say, wow, this is awesome. It's cool that I was chosen to see this. We would be It's sad to think that there's a lot of people in our culture that would have had their backs to the throne. So they could get themselves in the picture. Uh, Sometimes just Google people who fall into things because they're doing a selfie. It's just... <laughs> we'll put ourselves in danger just so we can be in the center of the world. He doesn't even worship. It's interesting. You would think that that's what he would do. He would fall on his knees and worship. He doesn't do that. And if you understand the moment, what he does is the only reaction that makes sense. He says... I'm cooked. I'm done. I'm doomed. I'm a man of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king. You see, here's the point. Without the stunning, perfect, utterly pure, Incalculable holiness of God. Stay with me here. There will be no knowledge of sin. It's the holiness of God that is the only thing that will reveal to you your unholiness and my unholiness. And so what happens under the shining light of the holiness of God, this man sees himself as he actually is and says, oh, my goodness, I am in trouble. If my calling is to represent this one, if, if my uh, calling is to have a relationship with this one, I am utterly different than him. I'm utterly distant than him. 
I'm reprehensible in comparison to him. Now, why is this important? Well, because, let's be honest, sin doesn't always seem sinful to us. You know that's true. If you're a husband and you're in a nasty argument with your wife, and you're saying things that you shouldn't say because you want to win that argument and you feel yourself winning, that moment doesn't seem sinful to you because you're taken up in the buzz of the power of winning. And you want her to say, you're right. You've always been right. You're the rightest person I know. I bow before your rightness. Oh, right one. If you're cheating on your taxes, it doesn't seem sinful to you. It's, you know, manipulating a few numbers. Who's it, who's it going to hurt? I'm gonna, about to hurt your feelings, but I think it's what I'm supposed to do. If we weren't able to swindle ourselves into the fact that our sin is not so sinful, Isaiah's words would be coming out of our mouth. It's so easy for us to somehow convince ourselves that that Anger wasn't really anger, and that lust wasn't really lust, and that selfishness wasn't really selfishness. Listen, I've said this to you before. I think I said every time I come here, I'm going to keep saying it. No one's more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. And the things that you say to you are profoundly important. And it's very easy for you to swindle yourself into, into thinking that your words and your behavior are not so bad after all. And so a husband who has been nasty to his wife will walk down the hallway and say, it was just a little moment, she knows I love her. He's backed away from that. Her wife was lashed out at her husband and in bitterness she's carried for a while will say, it was just a little moment, he knows I love him. Or, or a parent who's gotten into the child's face and said nasty things, will say, I was just being like one of God's prophets, thus says the Lord, when it was actually just ugly human anger. Where in your life right now are you swindling yourself into thinking your sin isn't so sinful after all? What you need is not just a better definition of sin. You need a vision for what is truly holy. Because 
It's the stunning purity of God that causes you to realize how impure, how often you actually are. I'm going to say this. I wish I could say to you this morning, I don't need this sermon myself, but I do. Is sin sinful to you? Reprehensible, disgusting, fearful, dangerous, destructive, disease. Now, something else to notice here is all very important. The very words of the Bible are important. Not just the big concepts, but the very words. The words were under the sovereign control of God. When Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips, though that phraseology is important. He's not saying, occasionally, I say some bad things. See, what that would mean is sin is just behavior. And if somehow you could harness your behavior, you would be okay. The reason we needed a redeemer is because sin is a state of being. I am a man of unclean lips. Now, think theologically what that means. James and other places talks about the connection between the tongue and the heart. Luke 6 has that connection. And so when he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, he's saying, my problem is, by nature, I have an impure heart. That's what he's saying. Now, this means this. If it's just behavior, I can manage a behavior. If it's just my environment, I could run from my be- environment. But if the problem is me, I can't run from me. That's why he says, I'm cooked because I'm my problem. Quit blaming your spouse. Quit blaming your children. Quit blaming your boss. Quit blaming the culture. It's all just delusional self-atonement. We're the problem. That's why the need for Redeemer, because the thing I need to be rescued from most is me. That's why he's saying what he's saying, I have no ability to escape me. I'm done. And you know, at this portion of the passage, he's absolutely right. He's doomed. He's done. Because sin without a Redeemer leads to what? Tell me. Say it. Death. He's right. He's dead. Because he's the problem. And he has no ability to escape himself. I love this passage because it's the entire gospel in the Old Testament. If you think you have to run, run to the New Testament for the gospel, you just need to sit down and read your Bible again. It's right here. Whole gospel. 
Now, what does he say next? I love, love, love this too. I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. This is a prophet who is saying, I'm more like the people around me than unlike them. Don't you wish more Christian leaders would think that? I'm more like these people than unlike them. And his heart is for them because he understands they're doomed too. Now, I know my tendency, and I don't think I'm alone in the room, is to see the sin, weakness, and failure of other people with a response of irritation, not compassion. Can we, can we talk about this? You know it's true. Sinners irritate you. <laughs> Don't draw your compassion. Someone bumps in front of you in a line, you think, who does she think she is? Someone controls a conversation in front of you and makes it their own, interrupting you and showing no interest in your story. You get in your car and you curse that person for the next 45 minutes. Repeating it over and over again. I can't believe she would have. Your children interrupt you as you're binging something on Netflix. You don't go down the hallway saying, thank you, holy God, for giving this opportunity <laughs> to minister the gospel to these dear lost ones who are my children. You burst in the room with eyes flashing and face red and start screaming at them. How dare they be sinners on your clock? If God loved me, he would have given me self-parenting children. If you could throw in a fully sanctified wife, that'd be cool. <laughs> I don't want to be around sinners. Listen, it's the holiness of God that produces compassion for others. Because you look at people and you see the dead walking. And you care about that. They're not just in your way. That's me. Luella says I'm always in a rush. It's true. She's shaking her head right now. And I can see people as being in my way. I'm project-oriented. I know what I want to get done every day, and I can see things get in my way. Listen, parents, you ought to look at your children and see lost ones. Lost. Doomed ones with no ability to get themselves out of the mess that they're in. None. They weren't put on earth to make your life comfortable. 
They weren't put on earth to give you identity. My children, none of my children ever have ever gotten up in the morning saying, how today can I impart identity to my dad? It's not their job. They're not put in your life to be your little indentured servants to make your chores easier. Now, children should take place in the work of the home. If they dirty the home, they should be part of cleanup. But you know what I mean. You can act like they're there for your ease and comfort, success and reputation. They're not your trophies. You have been given doomed ones because you're meant to be part of a rescue mission. Compassion starts with the holiness of God. Are you compassionate? Are you more irritated than compassionate? Do you recognize irritation warring, warring with compassion? I do. Do you care more about your own comfort and ease than you do about the condition of the people around you? I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Notice where the passage goes now. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. Now this seraph, seraphim has been flying back and forth, singing his doxology. This is, this is just amazing. And he, the doxology stops. It's an amazing thing to me. It's not that God isn't can, still worthy of the doxology, but the doxology stops. It's amazing that this is happening. You, you, you have to understand this moment. It's crazy. And the seraphim goes and picks up this ember. And now, instead of doing his holy work, of flying back and forth over the throne, singing this doxology, flies to Isaiah, touches his lips, and says, your guilt is removed. God breaks his worthy doxology in order to deliver forgiveness. What does that remind you of? Say it. The cross. Where Jesus deserving to be called worthy breaks the doxology hangs as a criminal 
Because forgiveness is just that precious to the Lord. The doom is lifted. The doom is lifted. Now, it would have been completely righteous in that moment for the wings of the seraphim to close over the face of God and the vision to be over. But that's not the plan of God. The plan of God is to offer forgiveness to doomed ones. To ones who have seen their sin and cry out for his help. And what you have in this moment, in these few verses, is the entire story of redemption played out in one scene. And this is foreshadowing, this is a finger pointing toward the one who would come, who would live the life that we could not live and die the death that we should have died and rise again conquering sin and death so that we would no longer have a sentence of doom over us. How beautiful. Now, I don't think that we celebrate enough. We ought to be the party people of the universe. We should not be walking around with long, sad faces. Because we have reason to rejoice. Mind-boggling reasons to rejoice. I love this scene in the parable of the prodigal son where the son who didn't run away realizes there's a party and he comes tromping home and sees his rebellious loser brother who now has beautiful garments on and is being celebrated. And he says, yo, dad, what's up with the party? I've been here. This loser? And his father says, the most beautiful thing we are celebrating because my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. If that isn't a reason for celebrating, I don't know what reason there is to celebrate. He was dead. He's alive. He's lost and he's found. We're going to have a party. Edith Schaefer, wife of great Christian philosopher Francis Schaefer, 
said we should be the most celebratory community on earth. We don't celebrate because people like us. We don't celebrate because we're healthy. We don't celebrate because we have lots of money. We don't celebrate because life is easy. We don't celebrate because everything in our family is as we would hope it would be. We celebrate because we were dead and we are now alive. We were lost and we're found. We have reason to celebrate. And listen, your worship leaders up here should not feel necessary to whip you up into some kind of religious frenzy. Because when those words come on the screen, you shouldn't need a cheerleader. You should be thinking, I was dead and I'm alive. I was lost and I'm found. You don't need a cheerleader. The holiness of God is what produces that celebration. Because you realize the utter impossibility of somebody impure like you ever having the acceptance and forgiveness of somebody pure like God. You realize how utterly impossible that is. What a miracle that takes to bridge the unbridgeable gap that is in the life of every human being. Bridged by Jesus. And for 33 years, the doxology was silence for Jesus. So that he would make a way for us to be forgiven. And the result will be that every knee will bow someday and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And the doxology will never end. It's stunning in this moment that for a moment that doxology ends so the seraphim could fly over and grant pardon Isaiah. Well, the passage ends this way. The voice says, who will go? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Evangelical mission, gospel mission, is propelled by the holiness of God. Because the holiness of God depicts the direness of the need. The impossibility of the task. And it creates in you a desire to see doom lifted for others. You get that there could be no single thing more important than all of life than what is pictured in Isaiah 6. More important than your marriage, more important than your career, more important than the things you want for your life, more important than your experiences, accomplishments, and all of those things. What could be more important than this? 
I want to say this to you because I think it's important to say. Go doesn't mean changing locations. Go means being willing to be part of the mission. You go right where you are. Sometimes right where you are, you will take you where someplace else. And it doesn't even start with words. It starts with living out of the stunning love that is presented in this passage, the compassion that's in this passage. I'm going to get up. I want to get up today, and I want to incarnate the love of the Lord Jesus Christ to the people who are near me. And perhaps if I do that, I'll be given an opportunity to speak truth into that person's life. Listen, mission is not self-righteously buttonholing people and making them feel like they're religiously stupid and you're smart. That's not witnessing. Can I just say that? That's just Christian arrogance. It doesn't help people. It hurts them. If I'm on the street and I have the hardest message ever to say to two people, because in the gospel, unless you accept the bad news, the good news won't mean anything to you. I'm on the street and there's two people there. They both need to hear this message. And one person knows I love them and the other person doesn't know me at all. Which person is predisposed to hear my message? It's not hard to answer, is it? Love. This passage never mentions love, but it, it pictures the stunning love of this Holy One. Breaks His song so that forgiveness can be given. That's love. We need this concept back. We need it central. There could be no more important word to be in a human mind and in a human heart. No more important interpretive and evaluative concept than this concept of holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for this short but profound vignette in the life of the prophet Isaiah. We're so thankful that this moment was captured for us, that the curtain was lifted so for a moment we can consider something that we don't often consider in something that has been lost in the world around us. Thank you for the gospel that's depicted in this passage. May it continue to draw us, to rescue us, to transform us, to propel us. In Jesus' name, amen.